Hey, GeoTrekkers, this is Dr. Howe. Welcome to podcast number 55. We like to make the double-digit podcast episodes interactive. So here we are at 55. We're going to answer your questions about the 2022 hurricane season. So getting into this, though, if you're new to the show, GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Hey, you can help us stay on the air by subscribing to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. So we are going to answer questions this week from hurricane season. I know a lot of you live in hurricane-prone places, but some of you don't. Some of you are up in South Dakota or in Wisconsin. I know you've all been very patient with us listening to a lot of hurricane-focused messages in recent months. Hang in there. There's a couple perspectives on that. For one, hurricanes are huge impact events that affect so many people. So we really like to cover them well. Number two, taking a page out of the script from the podcast with John Stewart. Remember the emergency management expert from the DC area? He said they were using and applying knowledge in Northern Virginia and the DC area about how to prepare for winter weather, advising people to take food, water, and and a blanket and emergency supplies in your car with you. That was a page out of the script from earthquake country in California. That's right, out in earthquake country, you don't have warning that an earthquake's coming. So you could be driving down the highway, an earthquake could hit, it could knock out the bridge ahead of you and crack the road behind you. You could be stuck on the highway for 18 hours. So in California, they advise people people have water, food, a blanket, a flashlight, emergency supplies with you at all times. They're applying that knowledge in Virginia, even though they don't really get earthquakes that much in Northern Virginia and DC. So really interesting how we can apply what we're learning from one hazard to another area. So I know we've been covering a lot of hurricanes in recent months, but even if you live in Wisconsin or Wyoming, there are things you can learn about these hazards and apply to your life where you live. And that said, at the end of the podcast, we're going to give a little tip about ways that we're going to be pivoting over the next several weeks and some different hazards that we're going to be covering. It's going to be really exciting stuff. Well, here we are. Episode 55, we're going to get into 10 questions that I received about hurricane season. The first one I've been getting everywhere. I go to church, I go to play sports, I go to the grocery store. Everyone's asking me the same question. They're saying, this was a really slow hurricane season, wasn't it? So let's talk a little bit about that. This is from Noah from the NHC National Hurricane Center, the CLIMO site. So if you go to nhc.noaa.gov slash C-L-I-M-O, they talk a little bit about the climate. And this is a quote from them. They say, based on a 30-year climate period from 1991 to 2020, an average Atlantic hurricane season has 14 named storms, seven hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. Now, a major hurricane has their categories three, four, or five. So those are the strongest wind intensities on the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale. So this year, how did it stack up? Again, normal is 14 named storms, seven hurricanes, three major hurricanes. This year, we had 14 named storms, six hurricanes, and two major hurricanes. So we were actually right on normal for the number of named storms and just one shy as as far as the number of hurricanes and one shy as far as the number of major hurricanes. So this year finished pretty average by the numbers, uh, even though it may not feel that way. And so there's a couple reasons why 
this year may have felt a little bit um, slow compared to other years. For one, 2020 and 2021, they were number one and number three years uh, collectively since 1851, as far as the number of named storms. 2020, we had 30 named storms. 2021, we had 21 named storms. So over 50 named storms in two consecutive years. And then this year we dropped down to 14. So it might have felt like it really wasn't that busy compared to the hyperactive years of 2020 and 2021. Also this year, we only had two landfalling hurricanes, both in the state of Florida. We had Ian, category four Ian in late September. We had Hurricane Nicole in early November, and those were both in Florida. And so there wasn't a really wide geographic distribution and really not that many landfalls this year either. A lot of the storms that were named were out over the open Atlantic. And so it just seemed like there weren't a lot of impacts and not a lot happening. Also, this year was very strange as far as the distribution of when these hurricanes happen. So we had a few named storms, really minor tropical storms early in the season. And then after July 2nd, we had nothing from July 2nd to September 1st, almost two months, including the entire calendar month of August, no named storms at all. This was very weird for a La Nina year. So La Nina, that's when the equatorial Pacific water temperatures are cooler than normal. Usually when that happens, we see hyperactive act or at least an active season in the Atlantic and the Atlantic water temperatures were generally running warm in the main development region, the Caribbean, the Gulf. So we had warm water temperatures in, in the Atlantic, cool in the Pacific, that combination pretty much the scientific consensus was that we're looking at an active hurricane season this year. And what we ended up with was a very average season and a very unusual season as far as these long gaps. Like you, no one would have thought we're going to go the entire calendar month of August without any named storms, but that's what happened. Our friend Phil Klotzbach, who does a lot of the seasonal forecasting with Colorado State University, very well-known meteorologist and climatologist, he, we were, t I was talking to him and he had this quote. He said, it's one of the most abnormal, normal hurricane seasons ever. And what he meant was the numbers aligned up almost exactly normal, but it was just really weird how we got there. August and uh, really July and August were so quiet. And then September really ramped up out of nowhere. And there we had a category four hurricane landfall as well. So, uh, you know, people asking why, why, why did we have these long periods, seven, seven weeks during the heart of hurricane season with nothing happening? I'll let the experts explain that, the people that do seasonal weather forecasting, but I think their answer will include an unusual amount of wind shear in the Caribbean and tropical Atlantic during these long times of inactivity. And we'll just have to see. It's always interesting to hear what they have to say, not only on social media, but also in our conferences coming up in the next calendar year. I always love hearing from Phil Klotzbach and other experts about what they, really what happened. Why did we get the pattern we saw this year and, uh, and how did that really play out? So that's the first question. Isn't this a slow hurricane season? Really, the answer is that it was pretty much normal as far as the number of named storms, not that many landfalls, and some really weird long stretches without any hurricane activity. Question number two, is hurricane season finished? People ask me this all the time when we get into October and early November. Is hurricane season finished? What they're getting at is you know, should I do that landscaping work? Should I hire that roofer to come and do that roofing project? Or might we still get a hurricane? Do, do we need to be worried about this? I get that question a lot, especially in October and early November. So according to NOAA, the national 
uh, uh, I'm sorry, the National Hurricane Center. The Atlantic hurricane season runs officially from June 1st to November 30th. The Atlantic Basin includes, so this includes the Atlantic Ocean, Caribbean Sea, and Gulf of Mexico. NOAA also says the first named storm typically forms in mid to late June. The first hurricane tends to form in early to mid-August, and the first major hurricane, Category 3 or above, typically forms in late August or early September. So what's really driving this pattern? I wanted to to make the point that the seasonal time frame has everything to do with sea surface temperatures. Tropical cyclones require water temperatures of at least approximately 80 degrees Fahrenheit to get enough fuel to strengthen. This normally happens in water near the Gulf and Southeast Atlantic around early June or so. And it lasts until typically about mid-October in the northern and western Gulf and a little longer in the central and south Florida area as well as the Caribbean. This year, the sea surface temperature was warm enough to support an early November hurricane named Nicole making landfall along Florida's east coast. By mid-November, however, if any last storms were likely were to occur, they'd likely happen in the Caribbean. So keep in mind that we kind of ease in and out of hurricane season. It's not like switching on a light. It's not as if on May, you know, getting into say like May 30th, May 31st, there's there's no activity, and then suddenly on June 1st, all this activity can ramp up. It's more gradual than that. We kind of ease into it and ease out of it. So For example, in June, it would be really rare to see a major hurricane, Category 3 or above, at that time because the water doesn't really have enough heat content at depth to support a major hurricane. Now, there have been exceptions like Hurricane Audrey in 1957, but typically speaking, those first weeks in June, we may see a tropical storm or possibly a Category 1 hurricane. But, you know, we kind of ease into the the season and we kind of ease out of it as well. So by the time we hit November, more or less things are winding down. But this year, really, we had warmer than normal sea surface temperatures east of Florida. That was enough to to support a minor, a really low end category one hurricane making landfall there in central Florida. So really good questions there about um, the activity this season and also the seasonality of when we're finished with hurricane season. I received three questions from our friend Casper Gregory. Casper is with the Tropical Weather Threat Society. He, James, and Kylie do an amazing job with their team. The goal of their team is to actually create this environment where there are no fatalities in landfalling hurricanes. So that's a great goal to have. They're very prolific online before, during, and after tropical cyclones. And Casper sent three questions. So the first question How many 2022 severe weather events in the U.S. exceeded the one in every 100-year average? So we sometimes talk about the 100-year storm. How many events this year exceeded that? So this is a great question. And this refers, when we talk about the 100-year storm, that's something called a return period, or how often a storm of certain characteristics repeats. So this is very localized, and it depends on very specific data parameters or types of data. So for example, when talking about if something was a 100-year storm, are we talking about the wind speed, or are we talking about the flood water? And then if we're talking about the flood water, are we referring to the amount of rain, the amount of storm surge, or perhaps the height of the water in a river or a channel of water? Even beyond that, let's say you're saying, okay, I'm just worried about rainfall. What about the rainfall? Was this a 100-year storm or more as far as the rainfall? Then it gets even more nuanced and detailed than that. For example, if we're talking about the return level or you know the frequency of this event, 
are we talking about a three or four day rainfall, like a really long duration rain like Hurricane Harvey? Or are we talking about how much rain fell in a 24 hour period or even a six or 12 hour period? Now, this might seem like I'm being really nitpicky and really nuanced here. But for example, for designing transportation drainage like culverts, they'll get really very detailed in the design criteria. They'll say, we're designing for this many inches of rain in a three-hour period or a six-hour period. And so it becomes very specific and very nuanced as far as what specifically we're talking about. So sometimes people will slap a number on a storm and say, that was a 500-year storm. Again, that would relate to one parameter in one location and usually breaking that down very specifically. So that 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 storm produced 500 year rainfall in three hours that means over a very long duration we should expect that that amount of rainfall to be equaled or exceeded only once every 500 years that would be a very rare event but these rare events happen we have a huge country we have over 3,000 counties so on average if you think about it three counties per year should get a thousand year storm statistically even if there were no climate change so along the coast storm surge is usually the thing that people are thinking about when they say was that a hundred year storm or how many hundred year storms do we have because storm surge does the most damage often so people are really asking about these water levels that we see and this was a big focus of my dissertation i built data sets for 26 gulf coast cities and calculated the first data-driven flood statistics using data since 1900. so these data can tell us how high the 100 year or 200 year flood is from a data-driven as opposed to a modeling perspective they can also tie the water level from a specific storm to a recurrence interval, like how often we should expect the water level to be equaled or exceeded. So for example, I just recently last year finished a project in Biloxi, Mississippi, where I built their first comprehensive flood data set. And according to this study, Hurricane Katrina's storm surge there was a 330-year storm. That means that was so rare, we should only expect that water level to be equaled or exceeded once every 330 years. So again, that's according to the data we built. And you always have to reference according to whatever model you're running or whatever data you built. In that case, those were data since 1900. To uh, calculate how many times the 100-year storm was exceeded, you need to go through data of dozens of cities and look through. So to really answer Casper's question, we would need to really look over maybe hundreds of different cities, look at their extreme weather. If it's wind, rain, flood levels and rivers, all this stuff, this would be a, a huge project to do, but it's a great question. And so because he's tying in this idea of extreme weather with with a frequency, right? Like, so how rare is this? That's a great question to ask, and it's something that we should be trying to answer. So another issue with this is that many times the base flood elevation, so this term base flood elevation, it's what FEMA estimates to be the 100-year storm. Again, this water level that's so rare that we only see it equaled or exceeded on average every one in 100 years. Um, so that's a hundred year storm. But what we found when we've gone to many cities, a lot of times what's called the hundred year storm, at least according to their historical data, might be more like a 30 or 40 year storm. Like we, we see locations where the hundred year storm historically has been topped multiple times. So sometimes people say, wow, it must be climate change. We're getting a hundred year storm every five years. There could be a climate change element in that for sure, but also 
what we've been calling the hundred year storms many times, I'm afraid is underestimated. So maybe the hundred year storm in a location is like 11 feet, but we've been calling it seven feet, if that makes sense. So we've been building to what we think is a hundred year storm, but it's really not. So let's get into this, you know, for this past hurricane season. And it's not really possible to answer this question for all locations, for all types of data. But for this past hurricane season, the big hit was Hurricane Ian out there in southwest Florida near Fort Myers. And Fort Myers, Cape Coral was actually one of the 26 cities where I calculated storm surge statistics during my PhD research. So using data from 1900 to 2013, so that's 114 years of data, I calculated a 100-year storm surge level. So this is based on 114 years of data. The 100-year storm surge in the Fort Myers area was 10.14 feet, the 200-year level 12.34 feet, and the 500-year storm 15.22 feet. So if Ian's flood levels in this area reached around 12 to 13 feet, this would make this generally around a 250-year flood event in this area. This means that we should expect this water level to be equaled or exceeded on average only once every 250 years. That said, when we usually do these type of extreme flood statistics, we usually put the... So if a big storm, a big catastrophic storm like Ian happens, we may recalculate the statistics and then we put that new storm in the statistics. And so not only to get the return period for something like Ian, but then also Ian starts to influence those larger statistics. I have not had time to go back to those raw data sets, put Ian in and recalculate things. So again, in, in my dissertation, I found the 200-year storm is 12.34 feet. That would probably change a little bit once you put Ian in the mix and maybe the 200-year storm jumps up to, I don't know, 13 or 13 and a half feet. So keeping Ian outside that analysis and looking inside, looking in the building through the window, we'd say Ian was maybe a 250-year storm. But once you put Ian in the mix and include Ian's data, maybe Ian is, I don't know, a 150-year storm or a 200-year storm. Whatever it was, it was exceptionally catastrophic and large storm surge. That's a rare event. You very well could go your entire lifetime or multiple lifetimes and not see anything like Ian. But in the region, we have seen flood events like that. I spent some time in the Tampa library when I was in Florida for Ian, and I found evidence of a 15-foot storm tide in 1848 when Tampa was just a small community. They had an army fort there. Again, 15 feet uh, came up as far as the water level above mean low tide. So we do know that these, say, 12 to 15-foot surges have happened and are possible there along the west coast of Florida. Many people on the ground will say, I've lived here my whole life. We've never seen anything like that. And that may be true, but when you go back before your life, it exists in the history and also the model suggests that we could see that. So you can't let your guard down just because you haven't seen something in your life. Mother Nature can always th throw surprises at us. Great question there from Casper. I wish I could just go through all these different cities and, and or all these different storm events and break it down. That, that could be like something that maybe for a master's thesis or even a PhD to kind of assess that at a wide scale. So say, okay, for all the storms in this calendar year, how many were more than 100-year events? That would take quite a bit of analysis, but it would be worth doing. That's a great research topic for a prospective grad student. Another question from Casper. During the second landfall of Ian in South Carolina, how much did the prolonged northeast fetch of winds along the southeastern U.S. coast prior to Ian's arrival contribute to storm surge values we saw in South Carolina? So he asked about the fetch over the water and how much did that contribute to the storm surge there in South Carolina when Ian made a second landfall. So Ian made landfall as a Category 4 hurricane in southwest Florida, 
across the state of Florida, got back into the Atlantic, and then made a second landfall, not as a major hurricane, but still as a hurricane in South Carolina, producing more flooding and wind damage as well. He asked about the fetch. So fetch refers to the distance over which winds are blowing in a straight line over open water. When hurricanes approach South Carolina from the southwest, like Ian did, the counterclockwise circulation around the storm often produces this prolonged time of winds that are blowing from southeast to northwest. So that's an onshore wind over a relatively long distance, and it can be over a long duration of time. And this just has to do with really geometry. As that storm continues to approach South Carolina from the southwest, the winds just continue blowing in the same direction. You can draw that on a map, show the counterclockwise spin of the storm, and the winds just keep building from the southeast. That can really enhance storm surge for sure. Ian also had a very large wind field, which can increase the fetch distance as well. So these bands are, are traveling in a, I guess, the, the radius of max winds and the radii of these, these wind bands are, are longer. So you're going to have longer fetches. And that's one reason that larger storm surges also, or l- larger hurricanes produce bigger storm surges. That said, we see something a bit odd in the NHC or the National Hurricane Center graphic archives from Ian. So if you look at Advisory 31A, issued on Friday, September 30th at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, we see this map with the extent of tropical storm force and hurricane force winds. Note that as Ian is centered off the South Carolina coast, the hurricane winds were mostly located to the west of the eye instead of the east. So we often talk about how the strongest winds are typically on the right side of the storm track. That's not always true, though. When you look at Advisory 31A, at 8 a.m. on September 30th, we actually see a plot, and I don't know, we'd have to really dig into the, the data, but it appears that the strongest winds were actually on the left side of the storm, and that can happen. That's, that's not unheard of. It's just a little less usual. So this may have been a continuation of Ian's left side being stronger than the right, which seemed to be the case at some of the intervals in Florida. For example, where I was positioned in Punta Gorda, Florida, the second half of Ian's eyewall winds were noticeably more intense than the first half. And this is maybe getting a little bit nitpicky. We do know from the National Hurricane Center advisory that the wind field for tropical storm force winds was very large in Ian, even as it approached not only Florida, but South Carolina. So really, I think there would have been a large fetch or long distance of tropical storm force winds approaching the coast. Hurricane winds, that's something that we'd really have to dig into a little deeper. But it looks like from the advisory that perhaps the hurricane force winds were actually to the west of the eye track. So they may not have had a really big fetch there on the South Carolina coast. These types of questions usually become clearer after the official NHC hurricane report is issued over the winter or the following spring. So some of these things are a little bit speculative. That's why it takes usually at least several months for the National Hurricane Center to release the official report after a hurricane makes landfall. And this will break down a little more information about the track, the winds, all that stuff. A storm like Ian is probably going to be a pretty substantial Hurricane Center report that's issued, I would think, later in the winter or early spring. And that should answer some of our questions about the analysis and really what happened during Ian. Okay, question number five, another one from Casper. Are there any ongoing discussions about mitigating the undercutting of infrastructure foundations from the currents created by storm surge? Can anything really be done about it? So this is getting into where sometimes we see that foundations on houses are undercut and start collapsing. Uh, My response to that, water is so destructive when, when it's moving quickly in a storm surge. 
I still remember seeing the roads in Mexico Beach, Florida, completely washed away and entire homes gone after Hurricane Michael in, in 2018. So there are a lot of things we can do to mitigate against water damage. This can include building larger and higher foundations, building walls to block the water, and installing things like flood vents, which can actually enable the water to flow through a foundation or a wall. So our Superstorm Sandy podcast from Long Island, New York, discusses some of these adaptations. We also have some social media reels that kind of show video of all these different adaptation ideas that they've done there in Long Island, New York, following Sandy. Installing foundations deeper in the ground can also help reduce undercutting, but this can also increase the cost of construction as more material or say more concrete is needed to build the foundation. So sometimes this is an offsetting thing. Obviously, sometimes building more resilient costs more money. Is it worth the investment? Sometimes it really is. It just depends on your flood risk where you're at. Some builders will say the best option is to focus on elevating buildings higher so the water can just flow under the structure. Just have to make sure if you do that, that the pilings go deep into the ground and that they're built very strong. If just one piling fails, the entire building will come down. So really interesting questions there. Um, uh, Getting into some things about the meteorology, but also the impacts as well. So appreciate those questions from Casper. Charlene Jackson asked, I would like to understand more about tornadoes and how the clouds develop into a tornado. A great question. Tornadoes are fascinating. Sometimes people confuse tornadoes with and hurricanes. So tornadoes are much geographically smaller. We can basically think of them as funnel clouds. Mostly when we think of tornadoes, we're often thinking of long track, powerful tornadoes that often form in the plain states in the spring and the early summer. Several of these factors align for these tornadoes to take place. One thing needed is instability, which we often find in warm, moist air near the ground when there's cooler, drier air aloft. We also need lift, which we often get near dry lines, cold fronts, warm fronts, or even sea breezes. Another ingredient we need for these long track tornadoes is wind shear, which is a change of wind speed or wind direction with height. When these ingredients are present, we often get tornadoes. However, hurricanes can also produce tornadoes. These normally form to the right of the eye, often in elongated squall lines that are coming on shore to the right of where the eye wall position is. And so as these squall lines are coming ashore, the friction they encounter when they when they hit land often spins up tornadoes. Geographically, tornadoes and hurricanes cover much less terrain than hurricane winds, hurricane rain, or storm surge. But if you get hit by a hurricane's tornado, the damage can be devastating. So there's a story from my town. I live in Galveston, Texas. We have the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history happen right in my neighborhood on September 8th, 1900, when the 1900 storm struck. And there is a Catholic school called Holy Family Catholic School. I walk by it or bike by it almost every day. And there's a bell in front of this school and the bell commemorates that this bell was rung during the night of the 1900 storm when the Ursuline nuns rang the bell to bring people into safety. And the nuns saved 1,500 lives that night by ringing this bell and bringing people into the Ursuline Academy. This was a massive cathedral that was built like a fortress. It was designed by Nicholas Clayton, our most famous architect here in Galveston's history. And it brought people in and the debris line came right up to the edge of the Ursuline Academy, but it survived the 1900 storm not only did the building survive, but 1,500 lives were saved that night in the Ursuline Academy. What a beautiful structure to see. And unfortunately, I and many of my friends have never seen it because it was destroyed 61 years later by a freak hurricane tornado 
from Hurricane Carla. So Carla hit more than 100 miles down the coast from where I am, more like probably 140 miles from where I'm at, from Galveston. But on this far right edge of the storm, one of these elongated squall bands came into Galveston, and there was a very powerful tornado that cut across the city, destroyed a lot of historic structures, including Ursuline Academy, was destroyed by one of these hurricane tornadoes. So again, tornadoes in general tend to be very geographically small, almost surgical. They do a lot of damage where they hit. But if you go a few blocks from where they hit, there may be no damage at all. Compare compare that if you've ever spent time in hurricane country. You could drive after a hurricane for hours and you're seeing blue tarps on roofs for sometimes hundreds of miles. Hurricanes have these huge wind fields. Tornadoes have much smaller wind fields. And then sometimes you get these tornadoes embedded in in hurricanes, which is what can happen. And I wanted to address that because we are talking here about looking back at this hurricane season and uh, there was a tornado question and it's interesting how the two can overlap. Here's a question from Jeremiah Long. How did Hurricane Ian compare to Superstorm Sandy in 2012? So that's interesting because in the last two months, we've done podcasts on both of those storms. We covered Ian live on the ground in Southwest Florida, and then we aired the episode from Long Island, New York that I recorded last year for the 10-year anniversary of Superstorm Sandy. Really interesting question how these two compare. There are similarities for sure. They both had very big wind fields, so really large wind fields, and that enabled them both to push really big storm surges. This wall of salt water that comes on shore, sandy storm surge in a lot of places was as high as, say, 14 to 15 feet. Ian, maybe 12 to 14 feet. Those are massive walls of salt water that are coming, moving across the landscape, flooding thousands and thousands of buildings, if not tens of thousands, creating tremendous amounts of destruction. So they both had that in common. And another thing they both had in common was they found populations that in some cases were honestly quite complacent. So we talked about this in our podcast in Long Island, that the year before they were struck by Hurricane Irene in 2011, it did not do much damage in that area. And so when Sandy came, people thought, okay, we've been through this before. It'll be just like it was last year. And it wasn't. All of a sudden, Sandy killed a lot of people and inflicted a lot of damage. And so there was a complacency in Long Island, New York with Sandy, in part because Irene the year before wasn't that bad. We saw a very similar story in Southwest Florida, right? We know that people were quite complacent in some areas before Hurricane Ian. And this in part was because they experienced near quote unquote misses in the past. Hurricane Irma in 2017, people in the Fort Myers area perceived that the, the forecasted storm surge never happened. It did down by the Everglades, but it did not happen in their zip code. So a lot of people think I evacuated for no reason. I'm not going to evacuate anymore. And then all of a sudden we're fighting for their lives in Ian. So I think both storms found a, a, to some degree, complacent population that was shocked by the devastation. Some ways Ian and Sandy were different. The track of Sandy was really well predicted by the models even days before. And it was a very strange track. A lot of times these storms that track up the east, up the east coast stay offshore. They kind of curve and they, they just stay offshore a lot of times. Sandy actually started tracking up the East Coast and then took this sharp left hook, this turn into the Jersey Coast, which put Metro New York area right kind of in this worst case scenario area where they were on the strong side of the storm. It was a very unusual track, but it was well predicted by the models. By contrast, I think with Ian, the the models were moving a lot in the days up to it. And and a lot of people on the ground blame that on some of the 
uh, problems with with people being caught off guard. A lot of people said, wait, this storm was supposed to go north of Tampa and now it's well south of Tampa. It seemed like the the models days before were more aligned with Hurricane with Superstorm Sandy than they were with Ian. Another difference, Sandy was extra tropical, whereas Ian was tropical. So tropical cyclones, there's a closed circulation around a well-defined center. They're feeding off warm water. They're, they're not associated with fronts or a, a, a mix of air masses or a, a boundary line of air masses. Sandy was extra tropical. So it had some tropical characteristics until right before it hit New Jersey, but then it started to get extra tropical. There was a mix of air masses there. It was no longer tropical. That didn't matter if you had four feet of water in your house, but it did affect how insurance played out. And we, we covered that in our podcast with Andrea Pelletier in, um, in you know talking about Sandy and how the hurricane deductible was not in play because it was extra tropical. So that did make a difference for insurance claims. Uh, Sandy probably impacted more people. I mean, uh, Fort Myers area is densely populated, so is Cape Coral, but really it was like Sanibel Island, uh, Fort Myers, Cape Coral, Naples, and a lot of people were affected. But with Sandy, I mean, when you got close to New York City, you got stretches where tens of thousands of people were affected. It was just an unbelievably dense population over a huge area. So I would say Sandy probably impacted more people. Ian had much stronger winds at landfall. That's another difference. Ian came in as a Cat 4 hurricane with sustained winds at least in the 130s, in some areas maybe closer to the 140s. With Sandy, really, it was a broad wind field, but maximum sustained winds were barely over hurricane force on land. And so uh, with Sandy, it was really more of a, a straight-up surge event. Uh, let's talk about this, too. In the, in the days after Ian, I was there. I was on the ground. I actually was car camping because all the hotels were gutted. And I remember it was really comfortable car camping. At, at night, it was in the 60s. In the day, it was in the, I guess, mid-80s. Weather was pretty comfortable in the days after Ian. In the days after Sandy, we covered this in our podcast, this hit around Halloween. And then all of a sudden, you had weeks to months where people didn't have utilities, didn't have electricity, didn't have heat. People were standing around burn barrels just to stay warm and not freeze. So you had some really cold conditions. This was in northeastern states in the autumn. Cold conditions after Sandy, and people just said, I can't live in my house. It's un it's unlivable. That was a difference as well. So you have some really interesting interesting differences and similarities between Ian and Sandy. Both were massive storms that we'll be talking about for decades. They both blindsided populations and they both were large, uh, geographically large storms that produced big storm surges and affected a lot of people. Moving right along, question number eight. This comes from Amy Wilkins. Do you think we'll have similar occurrence like Ian and Nicole, two hurricanes from this year in 2022, where the paths were very similar to another hurricane or hurricanes uh, from the past. So this is like Hurricane Charlie and Jean in 2004. They both hit in the same year. They both hit Florida. And they, you know, Charlie's path was similar to Ian and Nicole's was similar to Jean. It was a pattern that I've seen um, shared online. And I believe from what I saw, the number of days between Charlie and Jean was the same as the number of days between Ian and Nicole. So really interesting. And it's a, it's a good question. I think a lot of this is really from uh, probably a random pattern. But when a region or a state gets primed for active hurricane development, sometimes we see multiple storms in a season. Like So sometimes we'll see multiple storms, not quite back to back, but we'll see a little bit of activity, not just from one storm, but from a secondary storm 
within weeks or months. This happened in other times, like with Katrina and Rita, about three weeks apart in 2005, Gustav and Ike in 2008, about 10 to 12 days apart. Ian and Nicole were separated by more than five weeks, however, and you know it's, it's really interesting to see, is there a pattern set up? Is there a reason why that you know we, we saw a similar pattern from two storms taking similar tracks in 2004? We're repeating it in 2022. I don't think that there's really not anything to say like why we should see those exact tracks. I think the southeastern U.S. And, and that part of the western Atlantic and the Caribbean was kind of primed for a lot of activity. I think, though, as far as seeing those those track patterns almost repeat in 2022, what we saw in, 20, in 2004, I think probably it's just randomness. But when we get enough storms out there, sometimes we can see patterns repeat. It's a really good and interesting question as well, very observant. Question from Courtney Booker. I'm curious as to how hurricane predictions were made in the past without the use of satellite imagery. So nowadays we can see thunderstorms pull off the coast of Africa. We start talking about tropical waves. We follow them all across the Atlantic and through the Caribbean. We're sometimes talking about these storms for more than 10 days or, or almost two weeks before they would even impact the U.S. Back in the day, that wasn't the case. And so I, I wanted to get back into weather history and look at how observations were made and shared. Some of our founding fathers, like Thomas Jefferson, took very good archive of weather weather observations, but these weren't really shared or communicated yet. The communication really started with the telegraph. And this comes from climate.gov, this history I'm going to read. It says the ability to share observations was greatly aided by the advent of the telegraph, which enabled weather observations from distant points to be rapidly collected, plotted, and analyzed at one location. When the telegraph became operational in 1845, visionaries saw the possibility of forecasting storms simply by telegraphing ahead what weather was coming. Volunteer observers were recruited across the country via a circular distributed by the press. By the end of 1849, more than 100 volunteers throughout the United States were regularly reporting weather observations at that time to the recently established Smithsonian Institution. By 1860, several hundred weather stations were furnishing daily telegraphic weather reports to Washington Evening Star. In the years following the Civil War, the need to warn mariners of impending storms led Congress in 1870 to authorize the Secretary of War to take observations at military stations and to warn of storms on the Great Lakes and on the Atlantic and Gulf Coast. The service was extended in 1872 through the entire United States for the benefit of commerce and agriculture. The agency born under the Army's Signal Service would in later years be known as the Weather Bureau and then known today as NOAA's National Weather Service. So really interesting how in weather data and information were shared by telegraph in those early years. We know that that was happening even like when the 1900 storm hit Galveston. They were trying to telegraph up to Washington, D.C. and communicate with them the best they could. Around and But we still see that people were a lot of times blindsided by what was coming up to like the early 1900s. And then around 1910, there's a shift. And we start seeing ships at sea with two-way radio. And so all of a sudden, ships at sea would say, wow, I'm out here 
300 miles south of New Orleans with a 65 mile an hour wind, we know that there's something tropical in, in the Gulf. So that started around 1910. This was actually silenced in 1943. So we had this two-way ship communication in, in the 40s. We had World War II. And so in 1943, that this was silenced because of German U-boats. And in the upper Texas coast, we talk about this surprise hurricane of 1943, which hit the upper Texas coast as a Cat 2 hurricane. And the local population was taken off guard. The, the ship communication was silenced. And also, I think the government did not really want to broadcast to the opposition that our petrochemical base, you know, our, our oil refineries, things like that were going to be hit by a hurricane. And so they really kept it silent and the local population was taken off guard. After that, the U.S. government determined never to withhold information about an approaching hurricane again after the surprise hurricane of 1943. Right after World War II, in the mid-40s, we started with Hurricane Hunter aircraft that would start flying into hurricanes and taking observations. 1957-ish, around the late 50s, we started getting coastal weather radars that would actually send a radar signal and, and record what weather was coming in. And then in the early 60s, we started getting polar orbiting satellites. These are satellites that really orbit the poles and then the, the Earth spins underneath them. And so they're, they're doing strips of land. They're basically going over elongated north to south strips of land and, and downloading the data. And then in the early 70s, finally geostationary satellites that are really positioned over a fixed location above the Earth's surface, and they could really just keep a watchful eye over areas like the main development region in the Atlantic where we see so many hurricanes form. So really interesting stuff. Obviously, nowadays we have radar, we have all this satellite technology, we have the internet and apps and all this stuff. So I thought that we were beyond the age of being blindsided. We'll never be blindsided again by a storm like the 1900 hurricane. But with these rapidly intensifying hurricanes in recent years, it's made me question, you know, is it possible that we still can be blindsided? And I saw this in Hurricane Ida. Uh, in 2021, driving through Metro New Orleans the day before this massive hurricane comes in and there was no mandatory evacuation because the storm intensified so quickly there wasn't an, there was not enough time to get everyone out. And so this idea, I, I've often thought, oh, we can see these storms coming from Africa. We have plenty of time. In recent years, I've begun to question that perspective and began realizing we really need to be vigilant. We really need to be ready to go at a moment's notice. And you know, the time to start preparing for a hurricane is not when it's one day out, rapidly intensifying off the coast. Really, we need to stay vigilant and prepare really before season so that we're, we're ready to go at a moment's notice if we need to. And last but not least, the final question comes from Ashley Anderson. What improvements or changes would you suggest in weather reporting to really wake people up to hurricane and storm warnings? I love this question because it's open-ended and it's really getting out. What are we learning in our communication? It's not only just understanding and predicting the meteorology, but communicating with people so that they're more vigilant and, and more prepared for what's coming. Two things really come to mind. First of all, and I really saw this before, during, and after Hurricane Ian this year, we really need to get away from eye-centric hurricane forecasts that focus on where the eye is going. <clears throat> Our forecasts for more than 70 years have focused on mapping the eye position. This implies that if the eye of the storm passes over you, that's the biggest danger. 
In reality, locations to the right of the eye position usually observe the most severe conditions, and a location 30 miles to the right of the eye may observe catastrophic damage, while a location 30 miles to the left of the eye may observe very little damage at all. So people just assume, oh, I'm going to see where that spaghetti line goes, and it, closer to the line, more damage. Not really. A lot of times it's very what we call asymmetric or lopsided, and the damage Oftentimes, that eye track is the farthest left periphery of the really bad damage. So it's, it's really offset to what most people expect. Starting with Hurricane Ian, uh, uh, you know, after Hurricane Ian and when we, when we got into Hurricane Nicole in November, I refused to circulate any eye-centric maps when they're showing landfall. I was sharing maps that showed the probability of damaging winds and deep floodwaters. Winds and water are what kill people from direct hurricane impacts, not the eye passing overhead. So that's just a, a difference I'm going to make. I will show the cone maps and the eye maps when it's out over open water, but anytime that it's going to be approaching land and we're talking about landfall, I'm going to be showing probability of floodwater and destructive winds because that's what really people need to know about. And also I started in my messaging to start immediately talking about the impacts. I used to bury the impacts down like several minutes into a forecast after we've talked about where the eye is going to go and what category it'll be. Now I, I start with the impacts because people are busy. Sometimes they're only going to listen to the first 15 or 20 seconds of what you have to say. I'm going to start with a low-hanging fruit right there. What I feel that people really need to hear that could be life-saving right off the bat. Secondly, we really need to humanize the forecast by connecting forecasted wind speeds and water levels with impacts. I learned this the hard way during Ian. I was sharing a lot about wind and water level forecasts, but I'm afraid I didn't do a good enough job of really painting a picture of what this means. So if you're talking about eight feet of flood water, that could be completely outside the frame of reference of what people can, can imagine. What's eight feet of water? Maybe they, they picture the deep end of a swimming pool. Well, a, a a storm surge pressing, pushing in incredibly fast from the ocean, full of debris, full of pollution, with huge destructive waves, that's nothing like the deep end of a clear swimming pool, right? And so I think the more that we can humanize this and draw the impacts and like describe what does this mean? What does this wind speed mean for your community? What does this, what, this flood level mean for your community? I think that can help people say like, oh, wow, I've never seen anything like that before. Maybe I really do need to get myself out of harm's way. In many of our podcasts since Hurricane Ian, our guests keep coming back to this need to describe the impacts of certain weather and water conditions. So really painting a, a picture for people. There are a lot of new people that live on the coast that have never been through a hurricane before. Or in some cases, like we saw in Florida, people will say, oh, I've lived here my whole life. I've been through many hurricanes. How do you make the case that this one's different than all the other ones you've seen before? It's a hard communication challenge, but it could really save people's lives. So Anyway, everyone, thank you so much for sending your questions. Thank you so much for the interaction and the support. I know we have a lot of faithful listeners that listen to this podcast. Always love to hear from you, not just on the double-digit episode. So if you just have any questions, comments, any topics that you want to hear us cover, we'd love to hear about it. Again, we've been covering a lot about hurricanes over the past few months, and we are going to, in some ways, continue with that. The next two weeks are a real treat. We have award-winning meteorologist Rob Perillo coming on the podcast for the next two weeks. He's in South Louisiana. So of course we are going to talk about hurricanes. That's their big threat down there. But again, you'll be able to apply Rob's perspectives from what he's learned 
in South Louisiana. He also has worked in the Houston area, and he's originally from New York State and did his meteorological training up in upstate New York in the snow belt. So we'll be talking about different kinds of weather. We'll be a little heavy on hurricanes, but you'll be able to apply his knowledge and his experience to wherever you're at. Beyond that, I'll give you a little hint. We're going to go underground, actually. So we're called GeoTrek. Uh, the first episode ever, we called ourselves WeatherTrek, but we got into GeoTrek instead because we thought, well, what about volcanoes? What about earthquakes? What about tsunamis and things like that? Well, we're very interested in any extreme weather or disasters that impact the built environment. So hurricanes fall into that, tornadoes fall into that. But another thing that a lot of people don't think about are sinkholes and caves and times when the ground starts moving. We know that happens in Florida, happens a lot in the Appalachian states. We're going to be going underground for two episodes in early December. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm actually going to be recording some content underground. I'm going to be in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Kentucky talking about the impact of sinkholes and moving ground on buildings, even getting into what that means for litigation, what that means for better construction. And a little hint there, we might even include a very fascinating story from the National Corvette Museum in Kentucky when some Corvettes were swallowed up by a sinkhole back in the day. That's all the hints I'll give you on that. But uh, just stay tuned and stay with the podcast. I know we've covered a lot on hurricanes. I'm always excited, honestly, to see hurricane season wind down. It's been a really interesting season. And again, a, a huge impact there in Southwest Florida. Thanks for your questions on this episode and always stay interactive with us. We love to hear from you. We love to know what you're thinking about as far as extreme weather and disasters. Everyone stay safe. Enjoy your Thanksgiving wherever you're going to. If, you, if you're staying at home, if you're going to grandma's house or if you're traveling to another state, stay safe, enjoy your travels. And um, on behalf of the GeoTrek production and marketing team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. 